Amen. Well, please turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, and I will have you stand one more time before the sermon today for the reading of God's Word. And as you're standing, just a reminder, we are, again, five days away from the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has announced His Messiah, His Messianic Kingship by riding on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 and all of the patterns of this in the Old Testament. And here we have the first action of our King when He comes into God's chosen place of worship, the temple in Jerusalem. Verses 12-17, through 17, this is God's holy word recounting to us Jesus Christ and His works. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, that he did. The children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethlehem and lodged, or Bethany, I'm sorry, and lodged there. Let me pray for us, Lord. This text, and God, every text of Your Word, but Lord, there is a majesty here that uh, my sinful hands, God, I certainly don't deserve to be able to handle, but I, I do pray that today, through the simple meditation that I have had in Your Word that You've caused me to have, that You would help us to love You more and to see uh, the grace and mercy that's in our Savior, both to convict of sin, but to show grace and mercy. And I pray that we would respond even as these children did, God, with rejoicing, even as these blind and the lame did by coming to Christ, knowing that He will heal us. Lord, I pray You'd bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You might recall, maybe with... uh, anything but joy, that in a presidential election, maybe this is more than um, is common, but I remember very clearly a lot of talk about the first hundred days of our presidency, right? What a president will do in that first hundred days, and the reason why that's important is because the early time of a man being installed to office really reveals what's important to that man, Right? It shows where his priorities lie. More than that, shows if he's trustworthy. Shows what he will do. Our Savior here, I find it fascinating that last week he comes and announces himself the king, the messianic king that was promised to the people of Israel. And the first act that we have recorded in Matthew that this king does is go to the temple. Goes to the temple and cleanses it of false worship of things that aren't pleasing to God. He cleanses it of things that make God's worship less than what it was meant to do. It communicates something about God's worship that it was never meant to communicate. 
Jesus Christ, in our text, the central idea here is that Christ Himself enters into the temple, shows Himself to be the Messiah by cleansing it, thus showing Himself to be the the prophesied reformer of God's people. And He shows grace. He shows grace by healing the blind, the lame, and accepting the worship of little children who have nothing to offer and nothing to give. And the purpose of this text, I believe, as Christians, as we meditate on this text, is for us to see who Jesus Christ revealed Himself to be. That is the purpose of the Gospels overall, isn't it? Show us who Christ is that we might believe it. And so that is the first thing we must do with this text. What is Christ trying to reveal about Himself here? And secondly, how should we respond to that? And what I'm going to say is we ought to go to Him joyfully and in faith. Okay. So, first and foremost, we must know this text puts the responsibility on all of us in this room to know who Jesus Christ revealed Himself to be. Now, as we briefly went over last week, in chapter 21, we have three symbolic acts of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, that reveals something about Himself. The cleansing of the temple reveals something about Himself. And the cursing of the fig tree, which we'll look at next week, reveals something about our Savior, His mission, and God's desires for us. Jesus Christ reveals Himself in cleansing the temple, and so we must ask, how does He reveal Himself? What is revealed... And the thing that might be the most obvious to us is that Jesus Christ reveals an emotion about Himself here, doesn't He? He reveals Himself to be angry in this text. Righteously angry, for sure. In fact, as Albert Martin once said in a sermon I listened to a long time ago about this, if Jesus Christ was one iota less angry in this moment, we would all go to hell. If He was one iota more angry in this moment, we would all go to hell. Jesus Christ is perfectly angry. Perfectly loving God with all of His heart, mind, soul, and strength. Perfectly loving His neighbor as Himself in His anger in the temple. Now, we have to consider though how rare this moment is. Our Savior, so many times throughout the Scripture, is described as meek and mild, compassionate to the crowds, even compassionate to those He knew would reject Him. His heart was often moved to sinners like us, evil people like us, to do good for them. This meek and mild Savior is shown here to have a righteous anger. And a righteous anger we've seen before. Okay, When Peter, for instance, said, Jesus, you don't have to go to Jerusalem and, and be mistreated and die. Peter came out and said, You don't have to do this. And Christ was angry and said, get behind me, Satan. When they stopped the children from coming to him in chapter 19, Jesus was indignant at them hindering the children. But here, we almost see something at another level. Christ is certainly angry, but he shows his anger in in a physical kind of way, doesn't he? In John, which is probably another instance of him cleansing the temple, which we won't totally get into, we see Jesus even going into the temple and making a whip to drive people out. 
That's, that's an anger that is intense and severe. Now, when we consider this and we think about this text, usually what I hear people do is go no further than saying that righteous anger is often, well, is sometimes a good thing to have, right? We go to this text to prove that there is such a thing as righteous anger. But this text shows us more than that. It shows us more that Jesus was angry. It reveals what sins what sins arouse this holy anger in our Savior. If it's such a rare thing for our Savior to be this angry, even more rare for Him to show any kind of physical demonstration of that anger, it behooves us to say, what makes our Savior this angry? Zeal for God's house consumes him in this passage. Jesus is so disturbed by what he sees when he goes to the temple that he overthrows tables. He takes the money that the money changers had. So people would come from Galilee and different areas and they had to get a certain currency to give to the temple. He takes that money and scatters it. In the midst of a crowded marketplace, scatters that money drives them out. Mark, which we're going to look at, says that Jesus would not even allow somebody to carry something through that district. He was angry. And we should ask several questions because of this. First, who was Jesus angry at in this passage? Now, it might be tempting, and some commentators have taken this route, to say that Jesus was angry only because what was sold in this temple district was taking advantage of the people. There was a, a price gouging going on here, and people were using this merely for the sake of increasing their wealth at the expense of the people. Okay? But as we consider this passage, I think we have to say that cannot be the case, or at least that cannot be the only reason that Jesus was angry, or the only people he was angry at. That first, notice in our text, he didn't just drive out people who sold in the marketplace, did he? Who else did he drive out? Those who bought. Jesus was not just upset with the people who sold, but the people who sold and bought. Secondly, as we've already mentioned, in Mark eleven sixteen, listen to these words, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Something more is going on here than just price gouging. Why would Jesus, first of all, not allow somebody to carry something through the temple? First, we have to realize that we're not talking about the temple proper, the inner court of the temple where only the priests were ministering. This was the court of the Gentiles that surrounded the mountain on which the temple was built. And this is where people would gather for prayer, for singing of psalms and hymns. And what seems to be the case, as far as I can discern, is that people started using this outer court as a mere pathway to get to other parts of the city, right? This was the holy district of God, the temple that God had designed and had built, and people were thinking to themselves, instead of going all the way around the temple district, we'll simply use it as another road and go through it to do business, to go home, whatever it might be. And it seems as if Jesus is angry about this. But 
I would propose to you today, even though we have some semblance that Jesus was angry at those who bought and sold and those who carried things through the temple, Jesus was primarily not angry at these people. The the hotness of his anger lands upon the rulers of the temple, the religious rulers of the day. Because as we consider the rest of the Bible, this area of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, was a highly regulated and policed area. They did not just allow anything to go on in this area. The the chief priests would be in charge of what happened here. And this really conforms to the whole of chapters 21, 22, and 23 of our text. Jesus is consistently in confrontation with the religious leaders to show them that he is the Messiah and that they have rejected him. The chief priests, even one commentator I read, and I can't defend this, and I don't know if it's true, but some would say that Caiaphas, this year that Jesus did this, the high priest, it's recorded somewhere that he allowed these things to take place in the temple. Jesus' anger is at the men who allowed this to happen. His anger is chiefly on them. So, Jesus' anger is primarily directed at these religious rulers, but the next question is, why was he angry? Right? Why was he angry? It's it's natural for me to look at this text, look at the context, and see that Jesus was angry at the religious rulers of the day. I mean, from the beginning of Jesus Christ's life, the religious rulers have been after him. They've been against him. From chapter 12, they've been saying that he has a demon inside of him and that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. They have constantly been, been against him. And so it's, it's somewhat natural for us to see that. What's unnatural for us as Americans, I think, is to see why he's angry at these particular sins. People came to the temple and they were buying these animals, not just for any reason, but to sacrifice them to worship God here. And it seems very reasonable, perhaps in the religious rulers' minds, is we'll allow this to take place in the temple courtyard because it's expedient for the people. It helps people to worship. Perhaps they're even thinking maybe more people will come to Passover if we allow this to take place in the temple. This Passover crowd is going to totally submerge the city, taking the population from about 30,000 to 200,000 in a couple of days, and we'll just make it easier for people to worship. Could have been what they're thinking. But the Bible, this passage, I believe teaches that Jesus was angry at these people Because these activities diminish the reverence that the crowds were to have to God. They diminish the reverence that the temple was supposed to cultivate in the hearts of God's people. And our passage doesn't leave us blind to this, does it? Jesus Christ quotes Isaiah 56.7 and Jeremiah 7.11. Notice what he says here. He did this, he overturned the tables, and he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a place where God is called upon, relied upon, repented to, and loved. 
This is supposed to be a place to communicate to God's people that you can trust Yahweh. That He alone is worthy. But, notice the strong language here. It doesn't just say that it became a den of thieves, but you make it a den of robbers. You make it a den of robbers. How, how different those two things are. Do you see that? Prayer, relying upon God for what we have. Relying upon Him for everything. And a thief, a robber, going out and taking by force what it wants. What it wants. And Jesus Christ is saying here that by allowing these things to take place in the temple, even if you had good intentions in doing it, you've made my Father's house a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer. You're communicating something that worship was never supposed to communicate. The place where God was most to be referenced, His glory most to be seen, had been transformed into something else. But in all of this, Jesus isn't just acting like an outraged church member. He's acting as the Messiah who was prophesied to come. And in fact, the Scriptures in the Old Testament prophesy that our Savior coming would cleanse the worship of the people of God. Now, Jesus shows Himself not just to be angry then, He shows Himself to be the Messianic Reformer of the worship of God's people. And like last week, I want us to realize when we read the Old Testament, we see Jesus Christ fulfilling things not just by direct prophecy, but by patterns that are shown, right? That whenever we read the Old Testament and see a godly person doing something good, we should say Jesus Christ does this even more. For example... God often Himself shows His concern that people would have right worship. Not just right hearts in worship, which is wonderful and primary, but even right actions in worship. We can think very briefly about this with Cain and Abel. The very first sin after the fall that is characterized to us is that Cain brought forth fruit of the ground to offer on God's altar, and Abel brought forth an animal slain. It seems as if Abel is patterning his worship off of what God had done in the Garden of Eden, where Cain has no regard for it. But if that's not convincing to us, we have Nadab and Abihu. God shows his concern for right worship when they bring in incense to God's holy place that God had not commanded them to do, And he murders them, kills them for doing that. I I want you to turn to Leviticus 10. And the reason I want us to consider this is because I think it gives us not just an example, but a wonderful principle. It's a principle that as me and Joey pray before I come into the pulpit every week, that we always pray, if not verbatim, the principle itself. And I think that it's a timeless principle. Leviticus chapter 10 I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. I'm sorry, 1 through 3. But I want our attention to fall on verse 3. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, notice Moses, what he says to Aaron. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has done. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The job of the rulers of the synagogue and the temple, me and Joey's job, that the burden that lies upon us when we get before you on the Lord's day, is that he would be sanctified and that he would be glorified. And we don't trust ourselves enough to make up ways that that would happen. We lean upon God's word. But the pattern of God being concerned about the actions of worship isn't the only thing we see. We see kings themselves concerned for this, men concerned for it. We have patterned kings Hezekiah and Josiah that saw God worshipped in a way that he had not commanded and they cleanse the temple of these things. Nehemiah, we see a very clear representation of this, and it's an, actually an interesting parallel to our text because it's the only time that I found in the Old Testament where bought and sold are put together. Okay, And we have in that text Nehemiah going into the temple and throwing out the furniture of Sanballat, a man who was lodging in the temple where God said that these rooms were to be used for another purpose. And Nehemiah, in anger, threw them out. And then the Tyrians come on the Sabbath day to buy and sell. And Nehemiah says, I'm going to lay hands on you if you do this again. My point being that throughout the Old Testament, we have patterns of God being concerned about right action and worship. And we have kings and governors concerned about this. But the most clear thing we have is prophecy. In Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, I have you turn there with me. We have a clear prophecy of this very event taking place. Malachi chapter 3. With all these patterns in our mind of God showing His care for worship, of kings showing care for how God is worshipped, we have a promise that when the Savior comes, He will be concerned about these things as well. Verses 1-4. through four. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And notice what else it says. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and bring them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. The whole context of Micah is that the people of God were bringing any kind of animal, bruised, deformed, sickly, to the house of the Lord and thinking it would be accepted. And we have a prophecy here that when the Savior comes, He's going to cleanse people of impure worship and bring right worship about. This event that we see taking place in Matthew 21 is a clear and dramatic fulfillment of what's prophesied 
in the book of Malachi. And in this symbolic action, we see that Christ Himself is concerned with what the worship of the church communicates about God. And we must be concerned about that as well. And so we should see that one of the primary works of the Messiah is not only that He would cleanse us from our sin and show us the law of God more perfectly so that we could obey the moral precepts, but He would come to purify the worship of God's people. He is not only concerned with the right preaching of His Word, He is also concerned about reverent worship of God. That is something that is revealed about our Savior here. That He is angry and shows Himself to be the reformer of the church. But He also reveals something else in verses 14-16. through 16, That He is willing to accept all who come to Him. Now, this is what I find fascinating about this text. After meditating on Jesus Christ's anger and what He's doing in this text, how He is convicting the Pharisees and the Sadducees of sin in not caring how God is portrayed in the temple, the very next thing that we see is a sign of grace being shown in the temple. Isn't that interesting? It should catch our attention that Jesus' next actions in the temple are both displays of divine grace and mercy. And I just want us to consider briefly how this is a very common pattern in the Scriptures. That often God will bring the law to bear on believers' consciences and mind to the point where we see that we are sinners and we've sinned against God and that maybe He's angry with us because of that sin. And yet, He then shows us His grace so that we would cling to it by faith. There's a couple of instances of this that are very clear to me. First, the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. We see Jesus Christ giving the ethic of the kingdom of heaven and how glorious and good that ethic is. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount and don't come to the end of it saying, how could I, how could I ever do any of these things? Then you're reading it wrongly. But then we read chapter 8 of Matthew and we see the healings of Christ, the mercy, the leper coming to Him unclean and unable and Christ healing Him, much like this text. We see this in the book of Romans, don't we? Where the first two and a half chapters of that book are taken up with proving to Jews and Gentiles that we are guilty of sin before the eyes of the Lord. That no one is righteous. No, not one. In order to reveal to us the righteousness of God is not found in the law, but outside of it through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a common pattern. The Scripture would have believers to know the guilt that they have, the grace of Jesus Christ, and then to respond in gratitude by obeying God's law. Not because we earn eternal life through it, but because He's done everything for us. Because there's nothing left for me to do with regard to justification, I'm all the more willingly and freely obey Him. And so, notice that the same thing is happening here. The Jewish leaders in particular have been convicted of their sin. They've defiled God's temple. And the Bible tells us whoever defiles God's temple, God will destroy him. And yet, the next thing that Christ does is show a sign of mercy and grace. The blind and the lame come to Him in that same temple. And Jesus Christ heals them. 
And we've gone over this before. What, what do the blind represent? But, but willful ignorance about the commands and the grace of God. Closing our eyes to what He says so that we can do what we want. What does the lame represent? But inability to obey God's commands. Weakness in ourselves. But we see in this text that Christ shows Himself as a willing and an able Savior. We never read in all the Gospels Jesus Christ turning away anybody that would come to Him for healing. And brothers and sisters, He never turns away a sinner who comes to Him in repentance. Never turns away a sinner who does this. These signs shout loudly, although visibly and not auditorily, they shout, come to Me. The context is that there has been great sin defiling God's name in His own house But this sign communicates repent and believe the gospel. And you'll be healed. You'll be forgiven of your sins. But there's another sign of grace here that might be less obvious to us. And that's the acceptance of the children's worship. The acceptance of the children's worship. Notice what happens here. We're going to get to the response of the the temple leaders in the next part. But notice what the children do. In verse 15... The chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did. So that's coming on a donkey, cleansing the temple, healing people, and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. What what are they doing here? They're quoting Psalm 118. The same thing that the adults were quoting in verse 9 of chapter 21 seems as if the children in the temple are repeating what they heard outside the walls when they were approaching. And a, a wonderful thing that I believe Matthew Henry said, but I can't honestly remember, is that even when the leaders, uh, oh, that they're repeating the adults, but children can often be more bold where adults can be more fearful. Right? And I, I think of that with, with my, my little girl and her grandparents. Unbelievers as they are, we're, we're much more hesitant to share the gospel with them than, than my little girl is. And often children are much more bold than adults are in these things. Even when the leaders confront Jesus, even when they confront Jesus with this, he shows that this praise is not displeasing to him. It's not displeasing to him. Jesus Christ is not at all scandalized by children worshiping him. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 8. And he says, the most offensive thing you can tell a religious ruler, have you never read? Right? Don't you even know your Bible? Because it's written in Psalm 8 that we sang this morning, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy And the avenger, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take care of him? These children are ordained by God to praise his name and that praise shows his glory and might even more. And we might say, why? Why are children denominated in this psalm as the ones that God ordains praise through because children naturally don't have anything to offer, do they? 
They have no wisdom. Children are the the least in the kingdom of God because there's nothing they can give. They can offer no money. They can offer no wisdom. They can offer no real physical strength to the church. They simply cry out to God for mercy and depend upon their parents for all things. And Jesus Christ accepts the least of these to worship Him. What a sign of grace that we have here. Not only does He heal, but He accepts us. We have acceptance with our God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself reveals that He loves the faithful, humble praise of His people who have nothing to give. He loves it. Jesus shows Himself here in this passage to be a twofold king. One who has proper reverence for God, who loves God's temple and hates to see it defiled by man's will worship. And yet, He shows Himself in grace as one who cleanses and accepts all who come to Him. All who come to Him. In verse 15, I think it's key in this text. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that He did. And to reflect upon that. What wonderful things Jesus Christ does in this text. What wonderful things does He show as He goes to Jerusalem humble and meek riding on a donkey. What wonderful things does He show by cleansing the temple of man's worship and installing God's ordained worship. What wonderful things does He show by healing the blind and the lame. And accepting the praise of those who have nothing to offer. But that, the question that we should ask is, what do we do with this information? And the answer is, we must go to Him in joyful faith and repentance. We must. And this is what the whole Bible teaches, doesn't it? Everything in the Bible is calling men to have faith and repentance in the Son of God. All of this that Jesus Christ did in the negative sense exposes the hardness of the religious rulers' hearts. All of it. They reject everything that Jesus Christ reveals Himself to be. Everything. Their hardness of heart manifests itself when Jesus Christ reveals Himself. And and this is what the Gospel does, doesn't it? When the Gospel goes out to the world and it's preached, as we looked at last week, it's a smell of death to those who are perishing, but a smell of life to those who are being saved. And as Jesus reveals Himself, their hardness becomes apparent. They fulfill the proverb that we see in Hebrews chapter 6, that passage where it says, in verse 7, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And in this parable, what's the rain that falls upon the field? It's the means of grace. It's the preaching of the Gospel. The power of the Spirit in the new world to come. This comes upon the people of God or who name themselves the people of God. And it either produces fruit or it produces thistles. And in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, it produces thistles and hatred for God. They reject His reproof in the temple. They reject that they did anything wrong. 
They reject, like the fool of Proverbs, they will not hear rebuke. But their condemnation is not just that they reject reproof. And I want us to see this very clearly. Their condemnation is heightened because they reject grace. Jesus Christ, in showing the grace and healing these people and accepting worship, it only strengthens the hardness of their heart. The proper reaction that these men must, would have had was to see their sin, they've done wrong, see the grace offered in Jesus Christ, and repent. Repent of their sin. They would say that like the blind person, I don't know what I'm doing, I've made a terrible decision, I didn't mean, perhaps, to defile God's temple, but I come to you in grace and repentance. But these rulers not only reject His reproof, they reject a clear display of His grace. Now, this comes to no fuller of a head than in Mark's parallel. After these things happened, Mark tells us, and the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. But they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They're strengthened in their hardness of heart, and this manifests itself by murder growing in their heart. They're going to kill the Son of God because of the things that he's done. And so I'd say to you, brothers and sisters, children that are here today who have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, take heed not to reject the grace of God. Not to reject the grace of God. When we see the goodness of our Savior, we have the responsibility to go to Him in faith and cling to Him. We must see the goodness of the law that God loves proper worship. But... We also must see the grace of the gospel and respond appropriately. And so we ought to see that the proper response is given in the negative. We must not be like the Pharisees who reject reproof, who reject grace, who reject acceptance with God because they have no need for it. Rather, this text calls us first to believe. To believe. And first, looking at the blind and the lame as a positive example of how we ought to respond to God's reproof. We see here a symbol, but we see a symbol of prayer. Now, this was actually, I didn't think of this until this morning when we were praying at our little 845 prayer meeting. Jesus Christ tells us in this passage, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame coming to him? This is a symbol of prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, heal me of my diseases. Heal me of my sin. A symbol of prayer, of repentance. We must be convinced that Jesus is willing and able to save all who come to Him. And this sign is only given to sinners. Not to those who are righteous and need nothing. We must believe. But if you hate your sin... We should know by this text that He has made another way of righteousness. Full cleansing, full salvation for all who receive Him by faith. The blind and the lame teach us that we must go to Christ believing His willingness and ableness. But this text also calls us to rejoice. The children of the temple are an example for us to follow. And there, they here by praising are a prayer not of repentance and confession, but of praise to God. The temple 
has been somewhat renewed by Christ doing this. Prayer is what symbolizes and what characterizes His house now. It shows us that Jesus accepts the worship of all who come to Him. That we need not clean up our act before we're accepted by Him, but we can go to Him by faith. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This text calls us to go to Christ and rejoice and praise, gratitude, and obedience. All of these things come together in this text. We praise God that He corrects us. We praise God that He forgives us. But true faith goes forth from this and praises God again with joyful gratitude to His God. And so, in conclusion here today, we we ought to see in this text how Jesus Christ reveals Himself. He reveals Himself to be a reformer of the worship of God's people. He reveals Himself to be a gracious and merciful Savior. And we ought to take the negative example of the Pharisees and flee from it. If there's anything in our heart that just will not accept reproof and rebuke, we have to flee away from that and go to our Savior who can cleanse us and accept us, not for who we are, but for the grace that He offers us through His own obedience and sacrifice. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come before You. I I thank You for this text. I thank You that Jesus Christ is um, the same in heaven as He was on earth on this text. That He cleanses my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters of false worship. That He cleanses us of our sin, but at the same time offers us always and continually signs of His grace and His mercy that we might be saved. God, we love You. We pray that You would be with us as we look towards the Lord's Supper today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.